Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Now, my next guest has seen it all. He started working with musicians back in the Motown era and his most recent job was working with his old friend Elton John on his farewell tour. In between that, he worked with and became friends with everyone from the Beatles and the Stones to Freddie Mercury. Tony King, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Tony, you had such a fantastic and such a, a lucky life, really. And you've written your memoirs, Tastemaker, and it's full of great stories because really you had front row seats, I think, to maybe 60 years of, of, of rock history. I think it was Elvis who corrupted you initially and set you off on a life in rock and roll, was it? You know... Elvis was the leader of the new version of America, as it were, after the war. All of a sudden, America started giving us rock and roll. And along came Elvis, who was quite different from anybody else. His background was gospel church and country, and he combined those things in that wonderful voice of his. And when I heard Heartbreak Hotel... It kind of changed my life. I, I just thought, oh, my God, this is so fantastic. I, I just had to kind of slightly go in that direction, you know. And and so you started as a teenager working in Decca initially. And yeah, I know it was such an exciting time to be on the scene, wasn't it? Because London was swinging. Uh, and like from early on, you met the Beatles quite early on, didn't you? Yeah, I met the Beatles very early on. They... They came to London to do a promotion for Please Please Me. And when I met them, they were not kind of like the Beatles, if you know what I mean. They they were on their second record. Their first record had kind of did done well, but not number one. So when I met them, they were just on the cusp of becoming what happened, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, and I saw them in the green room at a BBC show called Pop In. But even then, I saw something really special. I thought, oh, my God, they are so special, these guys. And they were so, as a unit, they were so together, you know. And and it, there was just something special about them, especially John Lennon, who struck me immediately because he was such a big personality. But I kind of knew then, I thought, oh, these guys are going to be big, you know. They, they, you just felt it when you met them. And then you you developed friendships with them, but it kind of meant that you ended up being there at all these what are now various historical moments. Like you were you were there or thereabouts when the Beatles hooked up with the Maharishi and got into Eastern mysticism and everything. Yeah, I, as a matter of fact, I went to that lecture that he gave at the Hilton Hotel on Park Lane that the Beatles attended. And then um, all of a sudden, everybody was getting mantras and going to the Marahishi's uh, center in um, in Belgravia to get the, get a mantra, and it sort of became the the part of the scene. And then, of course, they went down to Bangor to see the Marahishi, and rather sadly, during the time they were down there, Brian Epstein died. And that was a terrible thing to happen to them because Brian was their, he was their chief, you know, and he managed them and he he gave, he worked so hard to get them their career. So to lose him 
was sad, but and that was they were all down at, with the Murahishi in um, in Bangor, and then they all went off to India to Rishikesh to the to the uh, ashram for a while, and they they were all quite involved in it. So, do you think part of it was that they were a bit lost and a bit vulnerable after Brian died? Well, I, I some of it, a lot of this started before Brian died. Because, um, you know, when they went to the Park Lane in Hilton Hotel in Park Lane, uh, Brian was still around. But I, I think that I remember talking to John about this at one time when I later on when I was looking after him. Um, and he's, he asked me one day how Elton was. And I said, Oh, Elton's, he's a bit depressed at the moment. He said, oh, is he going through his help period? And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, when I wrote help, it was because I was down and I, uh, all the, I'd had all the success. We'd had all the success. And it left you feeling not quite as, as happy as you, were go- you thought it was going to make you. And he said the lyric of help... Well, it's about that. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. I do appreciate you being around. So I think there was an element of, a little bit of an element of sadness. And I think that comes with a lot of people when they either win a great deal of money or make a great deal of money. It takes some adjusting to, you know. Yeah. And did John adjust well? Uh, Very late, very late. Only in the last few years of his life, when he was back with Yoko and he had Sean, I think that was probably the happiest time of his life, you know, the last five years, um, because he loved that he loved that little boy and he loved Yoko and he, he lived in a beautiful apartment in New York and he had a good life, you know. And th- you saw the beginnings of them getting back together on an earlier night, I know, because you were responsible for kind of coaxing John back onto stage in New York oh. one night with Elton, weren't you? Well, yeah, because I, I was working with John and Elton and I came over to New York together on the SS France with his band. We sailed to New York. We got to New York, we stayed at the Pierre Hotel John's at the pier with May. So we go up to see him and he plays this album and he says to Elton, do you want to sing on it? And Elton said, well, I'd like to do whatever gets you through the night. So three days later, we went to the studio. We did it awfully quickly. And when I took, I had to go back to Capitol in LA. And when we took the album into them, they chose that as the single. And so it came out and was really doing very well. And John was very happy. He had a hit single. And so Elton called me up one day and he said, do you think I've got a question to ask you? And I said, well, what is it? He said, do you think John would do Madison Square Garden? I said, that's a pretty big ask, Elton, but I will ask nonetheless. So John, so had, I, not, John had not performed in public for a while at this stage, had he? Oh, uh, yeah, I think he'd done a couple of charity things for political movements and stuff, yes. you know, John Sinclair and It Ain't Fair, John Sinclair, that was the <laughs> one. <laughs> and uh, anyway, 
I asked John, I said, listen, Elton's asked if you would do Madison Square Garden. And he said, yeah, if the record gets to number one. <laughs> and not thinking it was going to. And so I went back to Capital and I said, work the John Lennon single as hard as you can, because if it gets to number one, he'll do the garden without Elton. Anyway, it did get to number one. I called John up and I said, your record's number one this week. He said, does that mean I've got to do the garden? I said, well... You did kind of say you would. And he said, OK, then I will. And we did. We went up to Boston and uh, watched Elton's show because Elton said, well, if he's going to do it, you ought to see what he's getting himself into. And we saw the show. John loved it, couldn't believe the sound, thought it was fantastic. We come back to New York. We do rehearsals in record plant. We go through rehearsals. One more song to go, and Elton said, do you want to do Imagine? And John said, no, I don't want to do one of my songs. I want to do one of Paul's. And so he did, uh, I saw her standing there. He did. I, wanted, I saw her wow. standing. And so then he came on stage with Elton at Madison Square Garden a couple of days later. And it was the most amazing experience in my record career. And I think it's Elton would agree that it was the most amazing experience of his career because when John walked on stage, there was a five or six minute ovation and John looked bewildered and looked at the band as though to say, what's all this? What's all this? And they were nodding wow. at him and saying, it's for you, it's for you. And he he just loved it. And when we when he finished, he came off stage, and I he came. He, I uh, when the show finished, he came off stage, and I had a car waiting with May was in it as well, and he got in, and he and I won't say the word because it's radio, but he said that was dot 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 great. <laughs> wow. You know, I, I'll leave you to guess the words. Yeah. Like you have such great. You could call them memories. Or you could call them gossip, but you have such great stories. Now, Elton, we'll go back a bit because you kind of discovered Elton when he was just Reg, didn't you? Well, I didn't discover him. I can't lay claim to that. But I, I did befriend him when he was Reg and I did help him uh, get session work with people. So I helped him on his way uh, with um, he got uh, he played on. He ain't heavy. He's my brother for the Hollies, and he kind of arranged it, actually. And then he played on Baron Knight's records. And then he, you know, and I used to get him session work and we became great friends. And then, then he started recording with Steve Brown at Dick James Music. And he made his first album, Empty Sky. And then he said to me one day, you're going to have to call me Elton now. <laughs> I said to him, that's... Not going to happen straight away. I'm telling you that now. <laughs> so anyway, it didn't. And I never said, I used to say, well, I don't have to talk to him like without a name, you know. Yeah. Let's go here. Let's do this. Let's do it. But I never said Elton. And then one day I would, it came out of my mouth. I just said, oh, Elton. And I went, oh, my God, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, you, you brought Elton to his first gay club as well, did you? Oh, a gay bar, oh, definitely it was with me. <laughs> Would Elton have been worried to be seen in a gay bar back then? Well, he had never come out, you know, and, and I mean, there was a lot of stories about 
maybe Elton's gay, but it wasn't, he hadn't officially been anywhere like a gay. Oh, the only place we went was uh, the Yours or Mine after we had dinner with David and Angela Bowie. And we went to Yours or Mine and Elton said, is that a gay place? And David said, oh, don't worry about it. We've got Angie with us. We're smiling. <laughs> that was it. We went there every night after that. You know, it was, it was like a big, big thing. We, do, we took everybody there. Dusty came, Billie Jean King came. Anybody who was in town we were seeing got dragged to after dark after dinner. <laughs> Fabulous. I can, I'd say they were great nights out. You also, you would have had nights out with... Elton and Freddie Mercury together, which I imagine was some experience. Uh, well, they were just like a fun uh, comedy act. Yeah. Because they were both as so sharp and fast, and they were hysterically funny, both of them. And they bounced off each other like boom, 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 boom. It was like watching a tennis match, you know, between two great players or something, you know, Roger Fed- Federer and... Uh, Nadal, you know, the, the balls were flying backwards and forwards across the net. And they were terribly funny together. And uh, I love Fred. I thought Freddie was a lovely, sweet person. And he, he, he and I became really good friends as well. So it yeah, was you, kind of you, you, you detail in the book your first conversation with Freddie, which was a remarkably frank and open conversation for a first conversation. Yeah, because... John Reed, who was Elton's manager, had an office down the corridor for the management company, and I was in a rocket at the end of the corridor. And he brought Freddie in and he dumped him in my office and he said, Tony, I'd like you to meet Freddie. Freddie, I'd like you to meet Tony and I'm going to leave you alone now. And he left. And so Fred and I were sitting talking all the afternoon and we had really... Very, he was very, very frank with me straight away. And we were talking about Mary, his lovely girlfriend, a very sweet person. But I said, so are you gay? And he said, well, I, I think I am. And I said, well, does Mary know? And he said, I, I don't know whether she does. I said, well, you, you know, Fred, you have, to let, you have to level with her because if the press start coming out with it, it's a horrible way to find out. It's better for her to find out from you, you know. It's 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 more honourable than than her picking up a, a a daily newspaper and finding out. And I said, and eventually it will come out. So anyway, he followed my advice, and they and they stayed friends forever. Yeah, and he did. He loved Mary dearly always, didn't he? And- yes, he did. He did love Mary dearly, and she was very good for him as well. She was a very she kept watch over him. She, especially in his last days, he, she was. She paid so much attention to him and took such good care of him. She was a very kindly person, Mary. I had a lot of time for her. And, and you, you were one of the. I know Freddie had stopped seeing people as he became sicker with AIDS, but I know you were one of the people who visited him towards the end, and you, you write yeah. about it very poignantly. Well, he, he didn't. He didn't let me visit him for many years, and I knew what was going on because I first spotted it a few years earlier when I saw the blemishes on his skin, and I thought that look, doesn't look good. And then I tried to see him for several years, and every time I came to town, I called his assistant Peter, 
And I'd say, I'm in town. Is is Freddie? Can I see Freddie? And he'd say, oh, he's not seeing people right now, Tony. And so I said, okay, fine. But just let him know I'm around if he wants to see me. And then one day out of blue, you won't believe this story, but I'm going to tell you, I had a dream that I saw him. And I, he said to me, I'm so glad you've come to see me. So the next day, the dream was so real that I called him up and he came to the phone and he said, would you come and visit me? And I said, of course. He said, I'll send you a ticket. And off I went. And I spent a lot of time with him towards the end, you know. But he was such a brave and a noble creature, you know. And, and what would you do when you sat with him in his room or lay with him on the bed? Sometimes we'd watch things on TV. He, I remember once there was uh, Dionne Warwick and Gladys Knight and Patti LaBelle singing together. And Fred said to me, you've got to watch this. He said, look at those divas, look at them. <laughs> and he just sat there and he said to me, you must watch this. I mean, there's, there's such divas, look at them, look at them. <laughs> we, we talk, and then we'd talk about Elton and we'd talk about everyday things. And, you know, it was just everyday conversation. Yeah. And Listen, I, w- I want to talk about the Rolling Stones a bit as well, because that's a huge part of your life. Now, you weren't yeah. really convinced by the Rolling Stones the first time you saw them, were you, Tony? No, I saw them at the scene club in Ham Yard, and Chrissy Shrimpton, who was Mick's girlfriend, invited me. And I, I thought they were OK, but, I was, but at this point I was a bit, a bit of a Beatles fan, you know. I love the Beatles. And so when I first saw the Stones in a club, they didn't knock me out, but I thought they were good. And, of course, they had great records. They had Little Red Rooster and The Last Time, and they were doing really well. But then I got interviewed for a job by Andrew Oldham, who was their manager, and he would want to know if I would come and work for him. And um, he had asked me once before, and I had said, no, no, I don't think so. But then this time, when he sat me down, he played me an acetate well, they used to make acetates in those days mm-hmm. of satisfaction. And I went, oh, my God. You know, I said to him, what a record that is. And then, of course, I went, when I went to work for them, I became great friends with Charlie Watts. And Charlie was my friend forever. And his wife, Shirley, and his daughter is my goddaughter. And his granddaughter is my goddaughter. So... But then when I worked with the Stones, I realised how brilliant they were and what a professional Mick is and what a great front man he is and how disciplined he is. I mean, I, I learned so much of working with him. I learned so much. Is that part of what makes these guys superstars, Tony? Is discipline a huge part of it? Yeah, well, everyone that I've worked for are very together and they they do they they work you know elton works the stone mick works and and john works they they've all got that work ethic you know they 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 get on with their career and they they make sure that things get done and also there's always something about the big stars that you can't put a finger on it's like they always all have a little bit of magic 
just on that, you, David Bowie doesn't feature much in the book, but would when you first would have bumped into him, did you know he had something? Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, I went to see his uh, famous show, Hammersmith, with the, you know... The oh, The Last Spiders, Spiders from Mars show. Yeah, I saw that show and I, oh, my God, I was blown away. I thought it was so fantastic. And then, of course, when I had dinner with him, with Elton, uh, you know, I realised that he was this other world, this incredible uh, sort of otherworldly kind of person, you know. And he, but at the same time, very, very sharp, very smart. Mm. And, he, and, yeah, no, he was totally brilliant. And we were friends. And he would say, when I worked for Mick, I saw quite a lot of him because they were very friendly. So I did see David quite a bit. And then when he got sober, he asked me to help out a friend of his who wanted to get sober. Because by that time I was sober. I, I was sober from 1981 and still am. And David called me up and said, I've got this friend who needs, needs help, Tony. Would you, do, would you do me a favor and take him to a meeting? And I said, yes, of course. So I did that for him. And, you know... I would see him around, and then I worked at RCA for a while, so I saw him there when he came into RCA. You see, there's an interesting strand to the book in terms of your sobriety. So obviously there were loads of drugs flying around all the time. You really stuck with drink and maybe a little bit of hash, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I used to... My favourite cocktail was champagne and a bit of grass or hash. And then I used to smoke, uh, and Elton, in the early days, was not happy with me, you know, smoking dope. He wasn't, when we were on that holiday in, in California, he, I said, don't worry, I'll smoke it outside. And um, Keith Richards actually wasn't happy with you once either, was well, he? Just one time when I was with his girlfriend, Linda Keith, when Andrew Oldham and his wife, Sheila, and we all decided to have a joint. And Keith came in later and he could smell it. And he said, I hope you haven't been giving that to my girlfriend. <laughs> we all sort of looked at each other and yeah. said, well, actually. But then he, <laughs> then he had some, then he was all right. <laughs> yeah, and then he had some more. Um, yeah, because you went back to work for the Stones actually in the early 80s. And yeah. you present them as being in a kind of a bad way as an operation at that stage? Well, they yes, they were. I, well, I went to work for Mick. It was on She's the Boss, his album. And the, ba the band were not doing very well. They were making an album called Dirty Work and very well titled because that's what it turned out to be in a way. <laughs> Everybody was struggling to get through it and Mick and Keith were not getting along at all. Charlie started taking heroin. Um which shocked me, you know, I saw him in Paris and we had dinner and I went, what are you doing? You know, I was like, I couldn't believe that he was doing heroin. I think he just wanted to emulate his jazz heroes, yeah. you know. But anyway, they, it was a mess. And then Mick did a couple of solo tours, which I worked on. And he found his feet again because we got a guitarist in called Joe Satriani, who was fantastic. And we did, and um, we got Lisa Fisher to do backup vocals, and she was a great, and, and is still a great singer. Uh, and after that, 
Rupert, uh, Prince Rupert, who managed the Stones at the time, and Michael Cole got together and presented the Stones with an offer to tour that was too hard to refuse. And Rupert said, well, it's up to you two. If you can find a way to make up and get back on the road, you will be making a lot of money. <laughs> so they did, they did. They went off to the Caribbean and spent a few days together in Barbados or Montserrat. I forget which one it was. And they kind of mended, they mended their friendship. And then we started working on Steel Wheels. And then there was the Steel Wheels tour and, and more, many more after. I was with them for 20 years touring, going around the world several times. <laughs> Tony, when you, when you sat down to write your memoirs, I know a lot of people said, always said, Tony will never write his memoirs. When you sat down to write it and look back on your life and the things you've done and the people you've known, you must think, I've been such a lucky guy. I've had such an extraordinary life. Well, what I've had is a very privileged life. Yeah. You know, that's what I realised. I've had a very privileged life. And I had some moments that weren't so great, some sad times. I write about in the book, but I've led a very privileged life working for the best people. So, yeah, when I finished it, I thought, well, it's 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 a it's a good history, and I'm glad I've done it. You know, there was a gentleman who's in succession called Brian Cox. Yes, and I had dinner with him just before lockdown happened with at Lulu's, and he said to me, "Well, he's listening to me." telling stories and he said are you going to write a book and Lulu said to him oh he's never going to write a book he's always saying no anytime anybody asks and Brian Cox leaned across the table at me and he said you know what and he sort of kind of pointed a finger at me and he said you owe it to people to write this book he said you've had a very unique life and it's a very unique time and you really, really owe it to people to do it. Well, listen, I'm very glad Brian Cox pointed his finger at you. And I'm very glad you did write the book, Tony. And the book is called Taste The Tastemaker, My Life with the Legends and Geniuses of Rock Music. And it's published by Faber. Tony King, thank you so much for your time today. Good. Great. All right. Well, God bless. Email brendan at rte.ie.